I guess it was okay we read the same psalm. We're going to read the same passage from last Sunday for the sermon as well. So I guess we'll have a, a nice uh, revisiting. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. We'll read down through chapter, verse 12 of chapter 2. And then I'll give you this sermon. Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, for you shall be holy, for I am holy, and if you call on him as Father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. Now, this is an interesting. Verse 7 is, is an awkward verse. Uh, some translations put it a little bit better, I think. So the honor is for you who believe, but not for those who do not believe. We could add a not to be so great. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy, pe- a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's make a short prayer together. Father, we pray that 
pray that your word would illuminate us. We pray that your word would change us. We pray that your word would save us. And we trust you because your word is good. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In the two letters Peter writes to Christians, both are to people who are scattered abroad because of persecution. When you are hurting or suffering, it's easy to excuse bad behavior. Have you ever heard the saying, tough times make tough people? You've heard it? Tough times make tough people? That's good, actually. It's good and bad. Going through tough times can give you calluses that save you from injury, but they can also insulate you from needed sensitivity. The first thing to notice in verse 13 is that the apostle says we should be sober-minded and prepare our minds because if we are going to be the people of God, we need to view ourselves as a unique people who live within a bigger people. The indigenous people of America illustrate this for us. In Oklahoma, they have a lot of tribes. One of the most interesting is the Comanche Nation. They have their own unique values, traditions, and their own form of government, which puts them a little out of step with everyone else. And so it is with Christians. We are a people, a subculture, who live within a larger culture. The apostle also reminds us that Christians, we live lives that are not limited to our current existence. Our lives will extend beyond this time and this life upon the earth. In verse 13, he says, we should set our hopes on the grace that will be, that's future, brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is his second coming. And the most glorious part of the Christian existence takes place after the revelation of Christ when he comes from heaven. And when Jesus comes from heaven, we all are going to get new bodies. The dead in Christ shall rise and be changed and glorified, and those who are alive and remain to also be glorified. You'll get a brand new, sin-free body. When Jesus comes, the justified people will become the glorified people. Only in the time after the revelation will we be able to enjoy the fullness of God. We need to look forward in hope, resting in the assured coming of Christ, because Jesus will come again. The apostle is telling us to think differently about the way you live, to think differently about the way that you are. Now, like the Native Americans have tried to do, we must not lose our distinctiveness. I grew up in a group of evangelicals that I would call separatists. I derisively refer to them as Baptist Amish because they really wanted to live out of step with the world. And their focus became almost completely external because it made reaching spiritual benchmarks easier and it made you stick out. Within that group of Christians, men, nearly all men, had to have a tapered haircut. Real tight here, getting bigger as it goes away. Tapered. Tapered haircuts. Long hair, not short hair for women. If you want to see an interesting picture, you could Google John R. Rice on bobbed hair, bossy women, and lady preachers. (laughs) No long hair for men, no short hair for women, makeup only in moderation, not too many earrings for ladies, and none at all for men. Men in the churches were not allowed to wear shorts, 
In college, I played basketball wearing the mandated jogging pants and a basketball jersey with a t-shirt under it because we couldn't show our armpits. Women were forbidden to wear pants, no movie theaters, no dancing, and the list went on and on. And they lived this way to maintain an obvious distinctiveness. And in so many words and actions, they said, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be odd for God. You have to stick out. But their external separation overshadowed their internal devotion to Christ. And they were just as petty, arrogant, and as vengeful as everybody else was, but they looked great. They had become Pharisees. Now, the true distinctiveness of Christianity is how our inner man becomes more like Christ. We are to be Christ-like, and if we do that internally, our external lives will follow suit. Jesus told the Pharisees, who were the most separated and godly-appearing people of the time, he said to them, you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and full of all uncleanness. Now, this transformation that takes place within us, making us new, is both the work of the Holy Spirit and through the, the assertion of our will over our flesh. There is a, the Holy Spirit is there. He's working on you. He's prompting you. He's pushing you. But you also have to work at it. If, you, if everybody became a, a, a really lovely Christian just automatically, how come you guys are all so rotten? Well, I say you guys, of course, in the kindest sense possible. Why, why, do we, why does it feel like we have to work and assert ourselves? Because it's both things. The Holy Spirit is at work in you, and you have to assert your will over your flesh. Now, in verses 14 to 16, Peter says, We must not be ruled by our desires and lust. Friends, we have to be honest about our sinful inclinations. We are all tempted constantly to satisfy our lust. We lust after all kinds of things. Food, drink, sex, possessions, popularity, wealth, and other things depending on who you are and where you live. We are tempted because these things can and do give us some joy. Satisfying the passions of the flesh will bring you momentary happiness. If you like to drink beer, you can buy a 30-pack of beer. And the joy will last you for exactly how many cans? 30. It comes to an end. Valerie told me there's 20 cigarettes in a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> oh, she didn't tell me. Lacey did. <laughs> Welcome to the adult world, Lacey. <laughs> These passions that we have Offer us some joy. Now, the culture we live in says that we should be hedonistic and live in a never-ending cycle of self-satisfaction. And the rule of thumb in our culture is that as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, if it feels good to you, it's okay. But we are not of the world. Our all-wise Father God says we shouldn't do some things. We shouldn't be ruled by our passions, and we should obey Him. Now, those of you who are parents, no doubt you have wished from time to time that your kids would just listen to you because if they would listen to you, they wouldn't suffer quite so much. This is the same with God. He says, listen to me and your life will go better. In verses 17 to 21, the apostle reminds us that we should conduct ourselves 
with the fear of God throughout the time of our exile. Now, why does he say exile? Well, right now, we are in a world where, in one sense, God is not present. The psalmist says that our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Paul describes this reality in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says that Christians are ambassadors for Christ, which means we are his representatives in this world. And since we represent him here, we need to be sure that we obey him and conduct ourselves in a way that brings honor to him. Peter uses the word exile to remind us that we do not belong here. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The heavens beckon me. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. I don't feel at home in this world anymore. We are passing through this world to a new place. If you're a Christian. The Apostle Paul uses the same idea and terminology in Philippians, where he says our citizenship is in heaven. And that is not without some noteworthiness because to be a citizen of Philippi was to enjoy some very special privileges because they were Roman citizens. And to be a Roman citizen brought with, with it a lot of perks. And so Paul reminds the Philippians, he says, you are citizens of heaven. This is something that can be easily lost if you use the old Bible because it says our conversation is, is in heaven. As a kid, I read it and think, all my talk is in heaven? That's right. God hears all your talking. (laughs) True. But the word doesn't mean conversation. It means your connection, your citizenship is in heaven. Peter reminds us that we are no longer part of this world. We belong to the next world. And if this seems hard for us to believe, he goes on and he mentions to us the resurrection. Because the resurrection demonstrates the power of God to do what is unbelievably difficult, to do what is impossible. We can trust God. We can trust that our Heavenly Father knows what's best. And we can trust that we will be with Him one day because of the resurrection. He's proven His power over death. In verse 22, the apostle says that because we've been saved, we should love one another from a pure heart, And that the love for others that we have after we are born again comes from a new nature received from God. This means we don't love people because they love us. We love them because God wants us to love us. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, love your enemies. A fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence in Galatians 5 is love. John's first letter in chapter 4. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Now, honestly, there are Christians who are very easy to love. Then there are other Christians who are all prickles and stings. We know that people are not all the same. Have Have you noticed that? People are all different? Have you noticed? Some people are born sweet. Have you noticed that? Some people are just sweet. From the very time they emerge from their mother's womb, they're just sweet little babies. They're sweet little kids. They're sweet little teenagers. They're sweet little grown-ups. They're sweet little old ladies and sweet little old men. But then there's people like me who are the opposite. Born mean. 
and they stay mean. But when the new birth happens to them, people change. Some people in the new birth exhibit massive realignments of life that are obvious to everyone. Others experience renovations that are less obvious than others because there's something about our our natural selves. Plus, every Christian that you meet is at a different level of maturity or Christ-likeness. We're all on a spiritual journey headed to Christ-likeness in the resurrection. I want to say this to you, and I want you to think about this. Just because you've been a Christian for a long time doesn't mean you're a good Christian. Just like being an old man doesn't mean you're a good man. Right? Just because you can cut wood with a saw doesn't mean you're good at it. Now, we were doing the renovation of Fellowship Hall back there. Pat Swatowski, she said, Terry, go cut this for me. I said, no problem. I measured twice, made my little mark, and still cut it three-eighths of an inch short. <laughs> but I didn't tell Patty about it because I had two boards to cut. I thought, oh, I'll cut the second one right. <laughs> I cut them both too short. <laughs> now, I can cut wood. I can read a tape measure. I just can't you know, put those things together. <laughs> so how do we love these prickly people? It requires a prepared mind. You have to think differently about people. One of the reasons why pastors get out of the ministry is because they don't think the right way about people. The reason why some people get out of church is because they they don't think the right way about other Christians. They think, well, they're a Christian, they ought to act better. Sure, they should, but they don't always do it, do they? Some Christians don't know any better. And some Christians have bad days. Now, if you run into me on, you know, there's, I don't want to talk about it. How do we love prickly people? It requires a prepared mind. Paul in 2 Corinthians says that we do not know any man after the flesh. That's in 5.16. I and other commentators Take this to mean that we must look at other Christians and see them as works in progress and not as finally developed. Where they are today is not where they'll be tomorrow. We must see people as they will be. We need to see them as little little penny stocks that we buy and hope and trust that they will grow and become, you know, big yielders. We need to cut each other some slack as Christians, not be so judgmental of one another. We don't hold a five-year-old to the same standard of conduct we do a 50-year-old. We tolerate the hijinks of a kid because we know they will grow out of it. We know they will. Sometimes they just got to figure out what the right way to go. It takes a little while for people. Now, we love people as Christians not because of what they are, but because of what they will be in the glorious future. They may not be too good right now, but in the future, in the glory world, they will be exceptionally good. And I say this in love. And I'm going to say this to some of you, because it says some of you right here. Some of you people are knuckleheads. Some of you are. And 
I know you're going to grow out of it. <laughs> it's just gonna, it just takes a while because people have to grow. People have to grow. There's that great reading in Psalms 127 where it says, Your children shall be like olive plants around your table. And they'll grow up and produce fruit. Do you know how long it takes an olive tree to produce fruit or olives in a sustainable way for market, for for sale, if you have an olive orchard? It takes 40 years. Now, if you poke an apple seed in the ground, how long is it going to take before you get some apples off that seed? Somebody tell me if you know. I heard five years from somebody. You remember the, remember the old Arbor Day commercials? When's the, when's the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago. <laughs> when's the second best time? Today. Do it now. So it takes a while for people to grow. and pe- Some people grow really slowly. Some people grow more quickly than others. I know you're going to grow out of it. I just hope I live to see it. <laughs> you got to admit that was, that was funny. You got to admit that. As Christians, I mean, let, me, let, me reverse, let me reverse that too. Let me say this, you know, because there's two sides to a church, right? There's like my side and then your side. Pastors also grow, don't they? Yes? If I had come here when I was, tw- my first, the first church I pastored, I started pastoring in 2005, I think I was 27 years old. If that guy had showed up here in view of a call to preach, you guys, well, I would have made it past the interview, to be honest. Because I did have an interview with the church when I was younger, and they asked me my thoughts about Christmas trees, because that church was an anti-Christmas tree church. There's a lot of those out there. And they asked me how I felt about Christmas trees. And I said, I ain't got time to worry about no stupid Christmas tree. We got souls to save. Which is the right position to take, in my opinion. But I could have said it better. (laughs) I could have asked a clarifying question. Well, why would you bring that up? I mean, I wasn't as learned then as I am now because I've grown. Everybody grows. Church people grow. Pastors grow. All right, back to the sermon. As Christians, we must remind ourselves that everyone, me, you, and them, are on a spiritual journey. We all travel at different speeds, but we're all destined for the same reality. We all are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And until we all get there, we need to be patiently loving each other. Remember, it could be that the Christian you cannot stand right now We'll be a much better Christian in a year, so we don't give up on people. This does not mean that you must have an intimate friendship with everybody equally. We may not go to lunch with everybody. We may not play cards with them or let ourselves get stuck in an ice shack shanty, an ice fishing shanty with them, because murder could take place. <laughs> but if they are pursuing Christ, they will become more lovely. And if you are pursuing Christ, you will become more patient with them, even if they don't pursue him much. And we could pause here and talk about all the reasons why we don't like other Christians, many of which simply stem from the fact that we are way too judgmental of each other. Consider this text from Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. 
And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Friends, do not be judgmental because you will be judged. When I was a kid, I had pastors. They'd go up there and they would say, that country music is wicked. And the guy weighs 5,000 pounds. His belly's hanging down to his knees. He's telling me, don't listen to old country music, wicked stuff. And I'm thinking, you big, fat, stupid glutton. Why don't you follow what Proverbs says? If you're a man, give an appetite, put a knife to your throat. And then tell me about my country music. Sorry. But I'm just saying that when you practice severe judgment towards others, you're going to get it back to you. Now, when I was a teenager, my dad would say, you need to get up and do stuff. So I'd get up and I'd go do stuff. And then he'd be in the living room watching TV. Guess what I wanted to say? We should get up and do stuff. <laughs> anyway. We, we should not be so judgmental with each other. Paul talks about that quite a bit. Who art thou to judge another man's servant? Romans 14. Paul says in Corinthians, I don't judge you. I don't even judge myself because I can't make proper judgments. Only God can make proper judgments. We should not be judgmental. We should also be forgiving. When someone says they're sorry, when they apologize, when they own something they've done, forgive them. And if you forgive them, Keep your mouth shut about it to others and quit bringing up their past. You've forgiven them. Now we have this great story in the scripture where the apostle Peter says to Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother if he's trespassed against me? Peter says, seven times. Seventy, is that what he says? Seventy times? Jesus replied to him, no, seventy times seven. You'd be willing to forgive your brother for the exact same offense 490 times in the same day. That's the kind of, if you're thinking about how forgiving should I be, there it is. When you pass 490 times in one day, there might be a problem. 490 times. Now, I've, you know, I think you guys get it. In chapter 2, verse number 1, we find the words put away, which is what I meant to, that's where I wanted to get to last Sunday, but I didn't make it, but we made it this Sunday. Aren't you happy? In chapter 2, verse 1, we find the words put away. And put away in the old Bible, the authorized version, was divorce. Here are some things you should divorce from your behavior. Now, we're supposed to love one another, and if you love somebody, it looks a certain way and manifests itself in certain types of behavior. I'm going to read it to you. Because God says it in 1 Corinthians 13. Listen to the reading. Love is patient and kind, Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Solomon says in Proverbs 17, 9, Whoever would foster love covers an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. The brother of our Lord Jesus Christ in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20 says this. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now that is striking. 
I'm mad about this, and I'm going to do something about it. It can't produce the righteousness of God. You're not going to get what you want from it. Proverbs 19.11 says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. If the Christian church would take these passages seriously, you would see a serious decline in internal strife. But we don't do it. And the reason why we don't do it is because of pride. God help us to live up to this standard of love. Love for others, even our enemies, is the defining mark of Christianity. Now when you say you love someone, it means you treat them in a distinct way. The first verse of chapter 2, Peter tells us there are five things you don't do to people you love. We are not malicious. Malice is the extreme enmity of heart. It is a disposition to injure others without cause, from a mere personal gratification or from a spirit of revenge. There's two things there, mere personal gratification or a spirit of revenge. There are being mean can sometimes, being mean to other people can sometimes be something that kind of makes us happy. We like to see somebody squirm. We like to give them the spur. Malicious. And then there's this spirit of revenge. There's another element to it where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to avenge myself. I'm going to get even with you. My dad, would, my dad would get so mad at me and my brothers because he would say, you guys need to knock off all this tit for tat stuff. I'd poke my brother, he'd poke me. So I would hit my brother, he would hit me. Then I would choke my brother, then he would choke me. And then it would just go downhill from there. And my dad could hear it start with, in the back of the car, remember when cars had vinyl interiors? And you had that little smooth bit of vinyl in the back of a bench seat? It was the middle seat. And I would say, that's my, this is my side, that's your side. I only, had, I only had one sibling. If you had three siblings, I don't know what you did. <laughs> but there were just two of us in the back seat. I would say, you stay over there, I'll stay over here. That's your side and my side. My brother would lean over and put his elbow and get on my side. And I'd put my hand over there and push him back. And, you know, it just tit for tat. Tit for tat until we blew up at each other. Malice. You say, does this really... Why do you got to talk about stuff like this? If God has put it down in his book, it means it's something we have to talk about until Jesus comes. All this stuff. You know, the apostle, I'm not going to talk about that either. Number two, we do not lie to people we love. We don't lie to them. We do not defraud them or rob them of what they deserve. We don't withhold good treatment from them until they act better. This is the exact opposite of what Christ has taught us to do. We're honest with one another. The third thing, we're not hypocrites. We do not pretend to be what we are not with people we love. You can let your hair down with people. I had a large bit here that I, I had written out about acceptable levels of hypocrisy. Because we all kind of are that way. So if you say to me, Terry, how you doing? Have you guys ever asked me that? You ever said, how am I doing? What do I always say? Almost all the time. I say, pretty good. How you doing, Terry? Pretty good. 
Why? Because I don't want you to know how I'm really doing. And I don't want to tell you I'm doing great. If I'm not doing great, I don't want to lie to you. So I try to find this middle, this middle ground. If I say oh, I'm having a bad day, somebody's going to say, well, what's wrong? Well, I don't want to tell you what's wrong. I want to handle my own business. I don't want to, I'm not going to cry on your shoulder. And just, we all put up kind of a facade. We all, we all do it. But we, with people we love, there should be a kind of transparency that we have with others. We don't pretend to be what we're not. We don't fake it till we make it. The fourth thing is we're not envious. We're not envious of the gains or successes of others. Envy is when we fret or make ourselves miserable at the supposed superiority of another, and it often leads to hatred. We don't slander people we love. If you tell lies about someone, you are not loving. You need to be incredibly careful before you repeat something about another person. And the best way to avoid inadvertent slanders is to work at keeping your mouth closed. Slander. We don't, this is not how we treat people that we love. These are five things the apostles put them away. Then the apostle goes into verses 2 and 3 and uses a very small word with a very big implication. Because he says, if, if you have tasted this from the Lord, he illustrates that this desire to be holy and to obey God is natural to believers by reminding us how, of how little babies long for milk. And he says, this is the same for those who have been born again. They long for something they don't have. The big point of this section of scripture is that it is a normal expectation for a, to expect a Christian to want to obey God, to want to be holy. If you don't long to be holy, if you don't want to obey Christ, then it could be that you're not a Christian. If you can be a sin-serving, malicious, envy-filled, slandering hypocrite who never feels pangs of conscience, then you may not be a Christian then it would be good for you to think about that seriously. Because not being a Christian could be why you have such struggles. Being a Christian is, makes you different. It doesn't make you perfect, but it makes you different. I'm not talking about Christian perfectionism. Here's the last thing on my mind. But I mean, I, I read the Bible... Every day, I pray every day, I listen to sermons every day, I read books every day, and I often am struck by how little progress I'm making in my Christian life. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm not doing as good as I could be, and I, I want to do better. I don't always do, but I, but I want to. It's the desire to do better. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. We had a little kerfuffle at our house maybe, about, maybe, maybe a year and a half ago, and the kids were all in an uproar, and, and I was angry, and they were angry. And in, and in that moment, I thought, you know, Terry, you really suck as a parent. Because I was, I was blowing a gasket. I was ready to rip somebody's head off and spit down their neck. I was ready to chain them in the basement for the rest of their life. I was just, and I thought, why are you being this way? 
And I felt myself in the same time period just getting mad at Valerie for days. It didn't matter what she did. She could say good morning. (laughs) Terry, I like your hair today. (laughs) I mean, I just, we just, I didn't, I thought, man, I just stink here. And I thought, you know what? You got to be, you got to really, you got to really get your act together. Now, I wanted to get my act together because, man, the Holy Spirit was, was giving me the one, two, three, four. Boom, 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 boom on the inside. I knew I needed to get better. Man, I've tried to do better. A Christian, a person who's been born again, wants to be more Christ-like. We don't just, this, this is the great struggle, the great conflict. In verses 4 to 10, the apostle, he contrasts believers with unbelievers. And I think that he does this because this is where we experience the pressure. The world says live this way. God says live this way. And we're pulled between the two. So the apostle, he helps us to understand we are a people within a people in verses 4 to 10. He says that Christians, we have accepted Christ. But non-Christians have rejected Christ. We have taken the cornerstone, we've taken the stone that they rejected and made that rejected cornerstone the foundation stone of our life. We have taken who they have rejected and accepted him as our Lord and Savior. Therefore, they live by different standards and with different ethics than Christians do. Christ matters to us and we cannot expect Christ and his commands to matter to the world around us. That's why you're going to have this constantly. That's why you're, that's why you're going to see TikTok dominated by anti-Christian viewpoints. That's why you're going to see YouTube, the whole thing, you're going to see it all dominated by something that's unchristian. Because they don't have any value, for, they don't value Christ at all. He's nothing to them. He's nothing to them. Just like over in England right now, they're six hours ahead of us, I believe, it's 535, which means King Charles is probably finishing up his afternoon tea. Having his scone in his tea. Telling his uh, servants to fan faster. Faster, faster. And he's going to, but nobody here even cares about King Charles. How many, how many of you this morning woke up and thought about King Charles? Nobody. He's nothing to us. He is nothing because he's not our king. We don't care if he's sick. We don't care if he's well. We don't care a lick about it. We don't care about the, about, uh, what's his boy's name? The Duke of whatever, uh, Harry, not Harry, the other one. William. We're not worried about William and his kids and having a, a secession to the throne. We don't give a rip about any of that stuff. We don't care about Parliament or Guy Fox Day. We don't, nobody, nobody cares. We're Americans. We don't care about anything except football and deer season. <laughs> so we have to... We have to understand that the world we live in 
values things differently than we do. Now, Peter is quick to caution us in this, where he says, don't get the big head, because you are the people of God now only because of God's mercy. And then in Micah 6, 8, the Lord has told us how objects of mercy should live. He has told you, O man, what is good, what the Lord really wants from you. He wants you to carry out justice, to love faithfulness, and to live obediently before your God. Now let me give you another practical reason for obeying the Lord and not letting the passions of your flesh rule you. It's in verse 11. Abstain from passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Sin promises us something it cannot deliver. Sin promises us enduring pleasure. It causes us to be, it actually causes us to be disturbed in our minds. Remember in Genesis 3, Satan said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like a god. One bite and you're a god. Now, we've all seen Star Trek, haven't we? How many of you guys remember what Star Trek, Star Trek, guys, we're kind of getting into some, you know, you know, and there's all these weird things offered to Captain Kirk. If you do this, he'd get this. Satan said, if you eat of this tree, you'll become a god. And what did they do? They ate of the tree. Did they become a god? No. They brought upon themselves a lot of misery. And one of that, one of those things is misery of the soul. Now, my friends, remember, you have a saved soul inside a lost body. And your soul wants to do good, but your flesh does not. Now, there's more to that than what I just said, but that's, that's, I think that's the simplest way to think about it. Saved soul, lost body. Born-again soul, not born-again body. We should not sin because it is bad for us. I mean, how many of you guys agree with me? Sin is bad. Have a big, loud, juicy amen. Amen. Sin is bad. Now, sin is bad for your emotional health. Sin is bad for your spiritual health. So if you want to feel better, think better, be better, watch out for the sins. John Gill says we should not sin because we should, not, we should abstain from the passions of the flesh because they are enemies to our spiritual peace and comfort and the welfare of our soul. When we wallow in the mud of sin, it feels good, but we know we can't stand there, so we try to rise up and crawl out of the wallow. And as we try to get out of it, we slip and fall and are injured, and then we feel filthy and it feels like a futile attempt. We become unhappy over our failures. The unrest caused by sin reminds me of how an alcoholic or a drug addict is filled with self-loathing when they fall off the wagon. When we choose to live in sin, it's going to have a negative effect on your life. Living in sin will make you mad at God. If you're here today and you're backslidden, you're not, you're not right with God, I'll guarantee, well, I'm pretty doggone sure that you're mad at God. I'm pretty sure. Because 
sin separates you from God. It causes you to see God in the wrong way, in a wrong light. Sin will make you mad at God. Sin will eventually make you miserable. Now here's what David says in Psalms 38. This is one of the penitential psalms. There are seven psalms that are in the, in the psalms to pray when you're not right with God. This is, David says this in Psalm 38. He says, My iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day long I go about mourning. My sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. That's David talking about how he feels about his own sins. Because he's, they've made him sick. They've made him miserable. This is how a Christian eventually feels about their sin. But non-Christians, they don't feel that way. The late Adrian Rogers said, a lapsed man, a, a, lapsed man, a lost man leaps into sin and loves it, but a saved man lapses into sin and loathes it. So if you want to be happier, sinless. Now the, the devil in the world you live in says, if you want to be happy, sin. But that's a lie. It's, it's the oldest game in the book. Don't do the sins. Now the final thing is in verse number 12. If you're happy about the final thing, say amen. Well, let's just skip it. Here are six things to do with what you've heard today. Six things. Number one, if somewhere in this sermon, if God rang your bell, start repenting and confessing those sins and start doing it right now. You got to strike while the iron's hot, baby. You got to strike while the iron is hot. Because I've been in church. And I've had the preacher twist my tail, ring my bell, stomp my toes, gouge me in the eye, and beat me black and blue with the Bible over my sins. And I know I'm, right, I know I'm not right with God. And if I could just get out of that church building, well, then the pressure will go away. And what happens is you get really hot, you get heated up with conviction, and you don't make any decision, and you cool off and you get hard. You get harder than you were before. Like a, like a jar and a, a piece of pottery in a kiln. Heats you red hot and come out of there just hard as can be. If God's dealing with your heart, you need to start repenting now. Come clean with God. I'm not asking you to come up here and confess your sins. I'm saying go to God and confess your sins right now. Don't, don't put it off. Bow your head, close your eyes, talk to God. Now, in a little bit, we're going to put this service to bed. There's going to be tons of activity that's going to take place here. We've got a lot of things we've got to pull off today. And it'll be easy to get lost up in, that, in all those activities and get it out of your mind. While, while your heart is soft, do something now about it. Number two, if you have wronged people, go to them and tell them you're sorry. Tell them you dropped the ball. Don't defend your actions. Go and eat crow. The best way to eat crow is quickly. Just suck it down. Eat it. Swallow your pride. Swallow your pride. Three. 
each day. Get up and live for Jesus that day. Remember, it's just one day at a time. One day at a time, sweet Jesus. That's all I'm asking from you. God will give you, he gives you new mercies every day. He gives you a blank day every day. He doesn't hold yesterday against you. Take every day, start out anew. I'm going to live for you today. Forget yesterday's failures and press forward in a new attempt to be like Christ. Lamentations 3.22, his mercies are new every morning. Number four. If you've realized your lack of desire for holiness is because you're not a Christian, become a Christian. Call out to him. Ask him to save you. You say, well, I've been a hypocrite all these years. I've been telling my wife I'm a Christian. I'm telling my, my husband I'm a Christian. I've been telling my parents I'm a Christian. I've been telling everybody in the world that I'm a Christian. And if I tell everybody I'm a Christian, they'll know I'm a hypocrite. A couple things. One, they probably already know you're not really a Christian, so they won't be surprised. And I have seen a lot of people who I thought was a Christian actually become a Christian, and I've never been mad one second about it because I've been happy that they finally got born again, that they got saved. Don't let hypocrisy, that, that, that's just pride. You've been a hypocrite. It's okay. Jesus will forgive you, but you have to come clean. Believe in Christ. Number five, if you're not sure what to do, if you can't figure out whether or not you're just not right with God or if you're not a Christian, because if you start thinking about it, you'll say, well, if I was a Christian, I wouldn't do this. If I was a Christian, I would do this. If you can't tell which one you are, I'm going to give you some homework. All right? If you don't know if you're saved or if you're not saved, take the little letter of 1 John, it's five chapters long, and read it every single day until you know what you are. Every day until you know what you are. You say, oh, I don't have time for that. You're an idiot. You're just dumb. Not everything in life is easy. Not everything in life is easy. Not everything. I mean, you, you guys tell me. Are the best things in life super easy? No, they're not. If you want to know what you are in Christ, it's going to take some effort on your part. Not to save yourself, but the knowing. Read that Bible. First John, only five chapters. Read it. You say, I don't know how to read. It's, you can listen to it. If you're really torp about it, you call me and I'll call you every day and I'll read it to you. I mean, I'm as serious as a cotton-picking heart attack. This this is eternity we're talking about. This is the future of your spiritual condition. It's going to take some effort on your part. If you really want to know, I told you how you can know. Number six. Here are some promises for you. Here are some promises. Deuteronomy 4.29 You will seek the Lord, your God, 
and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. If you seek for the Lord, you'll find him. You'll find him. And when you find him, you will be tickled. You will be tickled. Psalm 34.10 The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Seek the Lord, and you'll get some good stuff. Psalm 34.10, I read it to you. Psalm 28.5 Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Seeking the Lord will bring you clarity in your life. Last thing. Amos 5.6 Seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord and live. I've given you all those promises to say to you. Seek the Lord. Somebody says to you, Satan says to you, God doesn't want you. Some old mean knucklehead church person says, you know, that's not what you hear from, that's not what you get from God. God wants you. Seek him and you'll find him. Seek him. Now let's make a prayer together. Okay, Lord. You know, I, I gave this sermon and I don't I don't quite know what to do now. On one hand, I feel like I'd like to just keep everybody in this room for a long time. That way they'll, you know, be okay. Well, Lord, if they leave this room, I know know the Holy Spirit goes with them. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will open their eyes, Lord, and work in their hearts. Lord, and I've talked about loving people and that kind of stuff, and you... You, you, you got a front row seat to my imperfections and all these things. And Lord, I pray that you would help me. I pray for these, my friends and loved ones, that you would help them. Create with them that hunger for righteousness. And I pray you would help them. Help us to seek your face. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.